together um, so that I can talk at you all. I'm so sorry. Good morning. Good morning. I know it would probably be way better if I just didn't say anything and we just kept this going all day. Maybe one of these days. Um, good morning. My name is Josh Harrison. I'm so grateful to be with you all today. I'm excited to be back here two weeks in a row. Uh, some of, somebody did something wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, uh, one of you, this is your, this is your punishment. You have to put up with me two weeks in a row, but I'm grateful to be back. Um, we are going to talk about, uh, continue our conversation from last week, um, about living on purpose, about what it means to live for the glory of God and specifically today, how we do that. But before we get into that, I'd love to pray. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are so grateful that we get to be here with your people. Worshiping you, giving you the glory that you're due, and hearing from you. And that's really all we want right now. We want to hear from you, so would you give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. We love you, and we thank you that you love us. Amen. All right. So last week, if you were here, uh, we talked about what it means to live for the glory of God. This is a famous, uh, famous line that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to move this up a little bit so you don't have to listen to me breathe the whole time. Is that better? Better? All right. Perfect. I'm getting the... Something from the booth, so that must mean a good thing. Um, okay, we talked uh, uh, in First Corinthians 10, Paul talks about living for the glory of God. And he's uh, in, in context of having this conversation about food and, and eating and what we should and shouldn't eat. You know, the, the context was food sacrificed to idols. Is it okay to eat or isn't it? And Paul says, look, at the end of the day, the most important thing to remember as a follower of Jesus is that you are now living for a different purpose. You are living for the glory of God. That is why you exist. So, Paul says... Whatever you eat or drink or anything that you do, make that your purpose. Make that your purpose. Uh, we have talked about last week this division that exists in our, in our minds, in Western minds, around the idea that we are physical and spiritual beings, that there's a physical part of us and a spiritual part of us. And we talked about the idea that that comes not from the Bible or from Jesus, but from Greek thought, right? And as much as we have been influenced in the Western world by Alexander and the Greeks, we are not disciples of Alexander, we're disciples of Jesus. And so we think about life not in these different compartments or categories, but as a holistic thing. And all of it, if we're a follower of Jesus, all of it belongs to God. All of it is His for His glory. So when we say we are living for the glory of God, we now have a different foundation that we are building our lives upon. We have a different source, a, a kind of a headwaters of our lives, and everything flows out of that. So our source and our destination is different. We are now people for whom God is everything. He is what matters most. He is the center of our universe. That's what he does when he comes into our lives, by the way. He takes us out of the center and he puts himself there. And when he becomes the center, then it's not about what we're doing in our lives. It's not about discovering our purpose for our lives. It's not about discovering our identity. It's about discovering his, his purpose, his mission. His mission becomes our mission in the world. And suddenly when that happens, we find that everything, everything in life is an opportunity to express that mission. That's what it means to live for the glory of God. God is the center of your world. His purpose, his mission in the world is why you exist and every moment of your life is an opportunity to live out that mission. That's what, it, that's what we talked about last week. Today I want to answer the question then, how do we do it? Because I don't know if you're anything like me, but I talked about that last week. I believe it wholeheartedly. And then I went and I lived my week. <laughs> and I missed all kinds of opportunities to live for the glory of God. Okay, anybody with me on that? I'm so thankful that you guys raise your hands. Sometimes I do that and I'm just the only one raising my hand. <laughs> And I just feel like an idiot. So I'm really, really grateful. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Last week, you know, I, I preach about this in church, and then I leave, and there's all sorts of opportunities. I mean, I had eating, and I had drinking, and I had lots of other stuff that I did, opportunities to live for the glory of God. And candidly, I mean, just confession time, I let a whole bunch of them slip by. And I start to think, why does that happen? And then I realize a few things about myself and the world we live in. First, I realize that I have been redeemed by Jesus, that I have been saved, but I am still in the process of being redeemed, if that makes any sense. Right? When Jesus comes into our lives, he gives us an identity that's based on his righteousness and not on ours. And that identity, according to him on the cross, is finished. It's final. It's complete. It's who you are. Nevertheless, we still have to live into it. There's a gap between who Jesus says we are and who we are on a daily basis. Right? Theologians call this the sanctification gap. In other words, a gap between who you are existentially and who you are right now. And we kind of have to live into that gap. And I, I realize that's true of, my, of myself as well, of, of all of us. We have this, this reality that we are called now and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God. But that's not going to be our reality all the time because we are still in the process of becoming who we are. And that process is happening in a world where that's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing that's so fascinating about this whole salvation deal is when God saves us, he doesn't just sort of suck us up into heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? We have this world with all of its troubles and all of the struggles that we have in it, and then he finds us and he redeems us out of it, and we get to spend all the rest of our lives, all the rest of eternity with him. But that's not how it works, is it? No. He redeems us out of it, draws us up into his heart, draws us up into his character, and then what? Puts us right back where we were. <laughs> Same old stuff, Right? Put you back in the same home, the same job, the same dysfunctional family, the same traffic, God forbid, right? I mean, that's, that's my daily struggle is traffic. It just kills me. I grew up in a state that has less people, like way less people than this county. <laughs> um, but he puts us back in the same situations, the same temptations, the same coping mechanisms that we used to have before are still available to us. The same distractions. We're a different person in the same place. The problem, of course, is that we were that thing, that old thing, way longer than we were this new thing. You know what I mean? You were born into this context, and you have been habituated, and I have been habituated in this context, in the rhythms and patterns of this world. And then Jesus saves us and says, okay, new game, new rules, new life. But then puts you back on the old field. Where all the old habits are still there and the muscle memory is still there. And I'm finding that that's going to be kind of a constant struggle for us. We have been made citizens of the kingdom of God, but have been put back in the empire of this world. And now it's our task. It's our job to learn how to live as citizens of the kingdom. And, and it's really difficult because the world's really, really compelling, isn't it? It's compelling. It's loud. It's sparkly. It's always there. You never have to wonder what it's like to live in the kingdom of this world, do you? In the empire of this place. It's obvious. It's on the news. It's in the ads. It's everywhere around us. We see the world everywhere. Whereas the kingdom, Jesus says, is what? It's quiet. And it's unassuming. It's like a mustard seed. Can you imagine how disappointing that must have been for Jesus' followers when he said that? Just a side note. Here, here they have this Messiah who shows up and he does all these signs and wonders and their expectation of him is what? That he's going to now ride upon Rome on his white stallion, swinging a sword and take back the nation from the Romans. And he says, all right, guys, here's the deal. 
I want to tell you about my kingdom. It's like a mustard seed. <laughs> what? No. No, it's like a holy war. It's, you know what I mean? It's, no, it's like you just put it in the ground and, and then you just wait. <laughs> and nothing happens for a long time. And then you see a little sprout. And then eventually you get this mustard plant, you know, and, and, and everybody's just so disappointed. Because why? They have been, like us, have been enculturated, indoctrinated in the rhythms of the empire. And in the rhythms of the empire, loud and in your face and strong and bold. That's how you, that's how you reign. That's how you rule. That's how this is supposed to work. And Jesus says, no, in my kingdom it's different. In my kingdom, the greatest is the servant. In my kingdom... You conquer by dying, right? This is a different way of thinking. And so it's hard for us who have been so indoctrinated in the rhythms of the empire to understand life in the kingdom, right? We have to participate with the Holy Spirit in what he's doing. That's what I want to talk about today. We have a role to play in our own process of becoming. If this is who we are in Christ... And this is who we are right now. I want to make two things really clear. One, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can get us from here to here. This is not something we can do on our own. But two, we have to participate with him. He will not drag us from here to where we want to be. I've heard the Holy Spirit described as a gentleman. He is not going to force himself into your life. He is not going to force you to become more like Jesus. And it's entirely possible. And this is a terrifying thing to think. It's entirely possible for a believer who has prayed a prayer of acceptance to Jesus, who has been given an identity in Christ, to never on this planet live into that identity. It's possible. He will allow us to do that. Okay? So the question we want to talk about is how do we do that? I mean, this is... This is this is all over the Bible. This is in Philippians. Paul says something crazy. He says, um, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Wait, wait, wait. Those sound like two contrary things, don't they? You work out your salvation, for it's God who works in you. No, no, no. It's not contrary. It's participatory. You are partnering with the Holy Spirit in the work that he's doing in you. He is working in you, and you are working out that salvation that he is working into you right? He's working it into you. You're working it out in life. That's how it works. He says it later in, um, in Philippians 3. He says, um, not that I have already obtained all this. He's talking about this life in Christ. Not that I've already obtained it or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Interesting wording, isn't it? I want to take hold of the thing that he's taken hold of me for. In other words, he's already grabbed me, now I want to grab him. Anybody who's ever taken a three-year-old to a grocery store knows what this is like. <laughs> right? I have a four-year-old son, and sometimes walking him through the grocery store, I'm holding his hand, but he's not holding mine. Right? He's heading this direction when I'm heading this direction. And that's sometimes how it is with us and Jesus. He has taken hold of us, and make no mistake about it, he will carry us home. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want him to drag us? From here to eternity. Or do we want to walk with him? Do we want to walk with him? That's what this is all about. Learning how to walk with Jesus. We have a role to play. So, we're going to talk today 
about something that the church has been talking about for centuries. More recently, the evangelical church has stopped talking about it, um, at least in large part. It's called spiritual disciplines. Okay? Spiritual discipline, I know it sounds kind of spiritually, it sounds very, um, it sounds very like for the extra holy and the extra righteous, but it's not. I want to suggest today that there are disciplines, or maybe a better way to talk about them is rhythms. Rhythms of life that we can have as followers of Jesus that allow us, that enable us to participate with him in the work that he's doing. That's what this is all about. Last week, uh, we ended the sermon with this, this revelation that um, to live for the glory of God means to live in the presence of God. That word glory in Hebrew is kavod. It means weight or it means, uh, yeah, essentially it can be also translated in a way presence. There's a weight or a gravity to God that we want to live in light of. In other words, if we want to live for the glory of God, we have to live aware on a daily basis of the presence of God. I'm beginning to think this is the key to everything. If we were just genuinely aware that God is with us in all things, then it wouldn't be such a challenge, would it? But that's the very point of the, of the enemy's attack. That's the very point of our, of our daily struggle is this world will take us out of that awareness of the presence of God and put us into an awareness of self. I'm doing stuff. I am making things happen. And that's how, that's how this whole thing operates. That's how my day functions. It's by my activity, by my work that things are happening. And then every once in a while, we have a little compartment of our lives where we'll invite God. And maybe it's a few minutes in the morning. Maybe it's a Sunday, you know, or a Wednesday night. Uh, and these are the compartments that God is relegated to. The rest of the week, we are very much the center of our own universes. Spiritual disciplines are simply a way that we take ourselves out of the center and put God back where he belongs. There are ways that we become aware on a regular basis of the presence of God. And I'm convinced that if we just do this, if we just do this one thing, everything will be different. So for me, um, I wasn't planning on telling this story, but we'll go for it anyway. I, uh, I was, I had a ministry. I was working at Vanguard University as a missions pastor. It was a, it was a kind of a pastoral position, discipling students. Yeah, there we go. Discipling students through short-term mission. Um, and, uh, I felt like God was calling me out of that. Uh, I wasn't sure what he was calling me out of calling me to step into something else. I thought it would be to continue in vocational ministry. It's what I wanted to do. Um, so I started, when it was time to leave Vanguard, I started looking around for church jobs and just didn't get any, didn't get any bites for whatever reason. So I ended up taking a job at a church, but doing IT work. So I was, it was a long story. I'm not going to give you all the details. But I was the IT director at a local church just up the road here. And I remember my first day on the job was really hard for me because I had gone from a place where I was in, in kind of one-on-one relationship with students discipling, preaching, doing all the stuff that I love to do, stuff that I felt like God had called me to do. That was a Friday. On a Monday, the next Monday morning, I was working on computers. I was crawling under desks, plugging in mice, you know, swapping out keyboards, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, that literally, you, you, that's, that's what it was like. And I remember I went home that night, and I was really frustrated. I told God that he had made a mistake. That I had, you know, I had been made for ministry, and kind of how dare you take away my ministry. How dare you take away my significance and my purpose in life? And I went to bed that night. I don't know if anybody else is like me, but when you just can't cope with life, you know, people have all sorts of coping mechanisms, minus sleep. Yeah? So I just said 6 o'clock. It sounds like a good time to go to bed. <laughs> just couldn't handle it. So I went to bed early. Woke up early, of course, because when you go to bed at 6, you wake up at 4.30 or 5. Um, I woke up to a voice in my head. I'm not going to say it was the audible voice of God, but it was probably the closest I've ever heard. And he said these words, and just this. He said, your significance comes from nearness to me. Period. And then for about a year and a half, that's all he said to me over and over and over again. And what I learned he was saying was this, you can do anything in the world with me and it has meaning. 
You can crawl under a desk and plug in a mouse. You can clean a keyboard. You can do whatever. I mean, put this in your context, your day-to-day. You can do anything with me, and in a way that you will never understand, the impact of that moment will reverberate into eternity. Or you can do anything without me, and it won't mean anything. You can stand on a stage and preach a sermon in front of thousands, but you do it in your own strength, and it will accomplish nothing. Right? (laughs) If we could just learn, church, to be aware of the presence of God, I'm convinced that would be the key to unlocking the power of God in our lives, in the lives of those around us, in our world. That's it. And that's what these disciplines are. Let's be very clear on this. These are not righteousness. These are not so that we can earn our salvation. Jesus has already completed that act on the cross. These are so that we can be aware of his presence and participate with his ongoing work in us on a daily basis. This is not salvation by works. This is salvation, as a friend of mine says, that works. This is salvation that works itself out in our lives. These are not righteousness, as Dallas Willard so famously says. Spiritual disciplines are not righteousness. They're not things that we do to be good enough. They're wisdom. Not righteousness, they're wisdom. They're smart things to do if you actually want to live out the life that he's called you to live. That's what this is all about. A discipline, again, Dallas Willard, um, a great Christian who passed away a couple of years ago. If you haven't read his books or listened to him speak, uh, I highly recommend. Could not, and I could give you some books if you want, but uh, he said this. A discipline, uh, this is my paraphrase, is something that's in your power to do, that enables you to do, something that you cannot yet do. You hear that? A discipline is something in your power to do right now, that enables you to do something you can't do right now. So if what we can't do, and we're all saying, left to my own devices, I cannot right now live to the glory of God every moment of my life. I'm going to go ahead and confess that. On my own, I cannot right now live to the glory of God in every moment of my life. What can I do? Well, (laughs) I can begin to practice the rhythms of the kingdom that will get me from here to here. That's our goal. Anybody want to be there with me? That's where I want to be. Glory of God every moment. Okay, so what do we do? How do we participate with the Spirit? And I'm going to suggest that there are some basic rhythms that we can put into place in our lives. And I'm coming before you today as one who's implicated in not having these rhythms in place all the time. But some basic rhythms we can put in place every day of our lives to enable us to grow into who we already are. So I want to, make, I want to do two things with the remainder of our time. I know I've spent, that was like a 20-minute intro, Okay. <laughs> I promise that doesn't mean it's going to be an 80-minute sermon. I promise that means that we're just going to kind of do the rest of this quickly. But I want to first make a case for, for rhythms in a rhythmless world. And then I want to talk about one rhythm in particular, which is the rhythm of Sabbath. Okay? So, rhythms in a rhythmless world. We live in a world where this is not the norm. Where kind of this life that is based on, on regular rhythms and routine is not the norm. We live in a place that is defined by the tyranny of the urgent. Whatever the task in front of us is, that's what has our attention, and that's what we do. And we are then under the impression that it's by my doing, by my addressing the urgent, that the world continues to function. I am kind of maintaining my life. It's my work that is earning a living to provide for my family, and therefore we're able to do the things that we need to do. And there's kind of this constant sort of production, work and production and earning and, as Shakespeare says, it getting and spending that defines our lives. And we're living this rhythmless life. I heard a, a, a guy recently talk about, a guy named Brian Zond, who's a pastor in the South. He talked about a life that we can live. 
He said the goal of the kingdom is to, is to give us a life that we can live, a, a life that's fully human. He said we're living lives right now that we can't sustain, that we can't sustain. And the world is, is testimony to that. We are living with historic rates of anxiety. I'm not saying that all of it is because of this, but, but anxiety, many psychologists are saying, is like, um, it's like a canary in a coal mine. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol that something at the core of society is wrong, that there's something broken that we need to address. We're living a life that we can't live. This, this uh, preacher, Brian Zond, he, he used this kind of thought exercise. He said, imagine you invented a time machine and you went back, let's say 5,000 years, and you kidnapped the first farmer that you came across and you pulled him into your time machine. He's out in the field working. You pulled him into your time machine. You brought him back to 2019 and then you made him follow you around for a week. Just, you know, didn't tell him what was going on. Just followed him around, followed you around for a week. And then you just put him back in the time machine and put him back in his age, 5,000 years ago, what do you suppose when he walked back to his house, what do you suppose he'd say to his family and friends? And Brian Zahn said this. He said he would say, I just spent a week in hell. <laughs> These people don't sleep. It's always loud. They're always busy. It's always light. There's no dark. There's no peace. There's no quiet. There's no rhythm. There's no sustainability to life. That's, does that feel perhaps like... Our world today. The Bible offers an alternative picture. That I know the Bible was written thousands of years ago, but that is still applicable today. And I'm going to call this the rhythmic life. It starts in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates everything. It says, in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. You know, again, it goes through this whole process. And then it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. He saw that the light was good. And it was evening. And it was morning day one. You've read the book of Genesis chapter one before. You've seen that rhythm repeated. Evening and morning day two. Evening and morning day three. God builds into creation rhythms. The sun circles the earth, or the earth rotates, I should say. The earth rotates, and it appears that the sun is circling the earth every 24 hours. And there's a rhythm built in. And notice how Genesis puts it. It was evening and it was morning day one. Not it was morning and it was evening. Interesting, isn't it? Why do you suppose that is? I think it's because God wants to make one thing clear. That it's my work that sustains the universe, not yours. What happens in the evening for most of us? We sleep. We rest. We are not producing. We are not working. And yet, the universe continues. We wake up the next morning to find that the sun has still risen without our efforts. That there is still air to breathe, even though we didn't do anything to earn it. That God has been at work all through the night, and we are now stepping into his work already in progress. That's the biblical understanding of life. It's not that when I rise and get to work, then the world begins to move. It's no, he's been moving it, and I get to step into his work already in process. This evening and morning kind of rhythmic understanding of life is an act of trust. I go to bed trusting that when I wake up, there'll be a world for me. There'll be a space for me because God has made it. That's the biblical understanding. I wake up into his work and process. I, that's why so many people talk about devotions in the morning. It's because you're stepping in to the new mercies of God and you're saying, oh, you're so good. Without my work at all, without my efforts, you have sustained all of this. Let me now partner with you in the work that you're already doing. 
That's rhythm one. Then, rhythm two. Find this in Genesis chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth, this is at the end of the whole creation story, after God has created human beings on the sixth day, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Rhythm number two, so we have a 24-hour rhythm, now we have an every seven day rhythm, this rhythm of rest that God embeds into the fabric of the universe. Isn't that fascinating? God rests. It's called the Sabbath day. Sabbath just means seventh. It's the seventh day, and one in every seven, God has built in this capacity in us or this need in us to rest. You know that there have been experiments around the world uh, over the course of time with different kind of weekly calendars. You know, there, I think during the French Revolution, there was an eight-week calendar that was proposed to try to get more productivity. And you know what happened? Suicide rates skyrocketed. Anxiety skyrocketed. We're built in, in, a, in a fundamental, supernatural way for a seven-day rhythm. Work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. This is something that God has built into the fabric of the universe. And again, again, participating in this is an act of trust. Right? You have to trust that if you take that day off, that there'll still be a world for you tomorrow. <laughs> and for some of us, that's terrifying. I have many friends who are self-employed. I'm sure there are some in this room. And you know, as somebody who's self-employed, if you're taking a day off, you are saying no to income. And you have to trust that God will nevertheless provide. Sabbath is an act of trust. And then the rhythms go on. If you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see that God builds in these festivals that are built around seasons. This is an agrarian culture. They, they grow crops, and so their, their, their calendar is built around harvest seasons. So we have planting, we have you know, growing, we have harvesting, we have early harvest and late harvest. And God gives different festivals at different times, each with a different theme. You know, we have festival of weeks. We have, we have things like, um, like Pentecost, which is the same thing. We have um, other festivals that, that God has built in. Um, um, the Day of Atonement. Some of them are celebratory and excited about the harvest that's coming in. Very kind of up energy. There's Day of Atonement that's a little bit more introspective, a little bit more confessional. But they're rhythms all built around the harvest to say, to lift our eyes above the creation to see the creator who's given it. Right? If you've ever participated in, in um, a Jewish ceremony, a Sabbath or a Passover ceremony, you've know, you know that there are these prayers that are prayed. Baruch Atah Adonai. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who makes grapes grow on the vine, who brings bread from the ground. Do you hear that? Who's the one who brings bread? Me? Nope. I can't make it grow. I can't do anything to make a stalk of wheat grow out of the ground. But God can. So it's a way, it's a radical act of, of, of trust and thanksgiving. It's saying, no, I know, that I, I know that I participated in this work, but it wasn't by my work that any of this happened. It was you who's given everything to all of us. And so these monthly, almost, festivals that recenter us in the story of God, that's what it is, you see? The, the, daily, the daily rhythm, morning or evening and morning, recenters us in the story of God. We are stepping into the story of God every day. The seven-day rhythm of Sabbath recenters us in the story of God. We're stepping into his activity, his character. The festivals, the monthly rhythm, recenters us in the story of God. It's you who has given all things to us. There is a rhythm to life that is necessary if we want to live 
as citizens of the kingdom of God. There's no rhythm to the empire. There's no rhythm to the world that we're living in. There's just the now. There's just the immediate. And if we live that way, we're going to miss the kingdom of God on a regular basis. We're going to miss opportunities to live to the glory of God. I'm suggesting, church, that we get a little bit more liturgical. That we build a rhythm of the kingdom into our lives. That we shape our lives not around the Julian calendar or the Gregorian calendar, but around the calendar of the kingdom, the work of God in all seasons at all times. And the way we do that, and here we go. This is the theme for today. And I know you've been waiting for it for a long time. (laughs) Sabbath. Sabbath is a way that we do that. Sabbath is simply, like I said here, out of this text, it's when God rested. God rested on the seventh day. And it's a, it's a day of rest. Not a day off, but a day of active rest. It's a day that, according to the book of Genesis, is both blessed and holy. Right? It's blessed and holy. Those two words are really, really significant. God blesses it, meaning that he has poured out on the Sabbath, the seventh day, a sort of supernatural grace that does not exist on the other six days. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me, saying that the grace of God is not on the other six days. It is. Right? The mercy and grace of God is actually what makes the entire universe operate. So God is certainly present in all days, but there's something special he's done to the seventh day. He's blessed it in a unique way. There's a supernatural grace on the seventh day and the rest that happens there. And he sanctifies it. He makes it holy. In other words, it's to be distinguished from the other days. It's a day not just to be distinguished from the other days, but in which God distinguishes himself from the other gods and in which we distinguish ourselves from the world. It's really, really important. And it's important to know that it's based in the character of God. Why is Sabbath important? Because God rested. God is, I mean, that's one of the first revelations of the Bible. We have God as a God who creates, and then we have God as a God who rests. Fascinating, isn't it? Because most of us, myself included, think I don't have time for rest. My life is too important. I've got too much going on. There are too many responsibilities that need my attention. There's too much that I have to accomplish. I can't possibly rest. And I want to simply suggest to you that God rested. (laughs) The God who creates and sustains the entire universe, who has probably a few more responsibilities than most of us, found that it was necessary or important for him to rest. It's fundamentally grounded in the character of God, and that means that it's grounded in our character as well. We just read, if you're reading the book of Genesis through, in, in Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27, 28, you read that human beings are made in the image of God, right? Which would, what leads me to, to say, okay, well, that's, that's mind-blowing. We are made with some of the character of God, some of the image of God built into us. I wonder what that means. And then you read on, and the first thing you see God do is rest, right? If you want to know the image of God, the character of God, read on in the Bible. The first thing he does is he rests. If we're made in his image, then that's part of our lives as well. It's necessary for us who are created in the image of God to enter into a blessed and a holy rest. It's necessary for God. It was important to God, I should say. It's important for us. It's a holy day, God says. It's set apart. Set apart from all of creation. Your... your, um, your pastor, Eric, and, and several others who are in, in Jerusalem right now, I've had the, the opportunity to go to Jerusalem several times. And um, a couple times I've been there, we've done this experience called Shabbat of a Lifetime, which is basically Jewish families who invite uh, non-Jews into their home to show them what Sabbath is all about. 
It's really, really beautiful. We have dinner with him on a Friday night and just get to observe what it looks like. And I could tell you kind of all the details of um, the lights, you know. Um, there are only certain lights on in the house. There's no electrical devices, no no. No cell phones, no nothing on or around in the house, no TVs. I mean, people walking the streets, their cars aren't running. I mean, there's a whole bunch to it. But at the end of the day, we had this conversation over dinner table with a rabbi in Jerusalem, and he said something fascinating. He said, you know what's so special about the Sabbath? Is the Sabbath is the one thing that has preserved the Jewish people throughout the millennia. Fascinating, isn't it? When you think about what the Jewish people are, they're a nation now that, I mean, we have the nation of Israel which exists since 1949. And that's the first time in history that the Jewish people have had a a real homeland, other than kind of different sporadic periods in the biblical times, right? And yet, for thousands of years, they have survived as a people without a land. There's no other people on earth who's done that. Right? When you don't have a land, you just sort of assimilate yourself into the culture of those around you. The Jewish people were able to maintain a distinct identity, which has come at a cost for them. But how did they do it? The rabbi said Sabbath. Sabbath is the thing that has preserved us through the generations. It's the thing that has set us apart from the world around us. And I thought, what a biblical way of thinking about this. That's what God said it was for. It's a holy day. It's a day that is different, and it's a day to be different It's a day to engage in different rhythms, in a different calendar, in a different way of living than the empires that are working around you. I keep on using this language of empire because that's how the people of God have functioned throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, right? Starting with Egypt and then on into, you know, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and on into today. We still have these rhythms of empire and God is constantly calling his people to be kingdom citizens in an empire. And Sabbath is the way that we do it. So when God leads his people out of Egypt, he leads them to this mountain. And he says to them, okay, I've got some commands for you. I've got these ten commandments, Exodus chapter 20. He gives three of them that are based in his character. The fourth one says this, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do no work. Neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, your male or female servants, your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, excuse me, and the seas and all that's in them. On the the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You hear the rationale. He's led them out of Egypt, which Egypt is defined by the kind of rules of the empire. It's constant work. You remember the story? Uh, Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, these people are constantly whining about their work. I need more bricks. I need less straw. There's this sort of dehumanizing system where these people are now producers for Pharaoh. They're building up his sort of stockpiles. There's never enough in Egypt. There's constant need for more with less, more bricks, less straw. Your people are always whining. They need to work harder. Does this sound familiar? And God says, no, no, no. Okay, I've led you out of that. I have emancipated you from the system of more with less of constant activity. And now I want you to rest. Not just I want you to, I command you to. He gives three commands that are about loving the Lord your God. He gives this command about rest, and then he gives six commands about loving your neighbors yourself. And theologians, Jewish and Christian alike, have said that one command stands at the center, forms the bridge between the other two. It's how we love God so that we can love others. We do it out of a place of restfulness. Sabbath is vital to fulfilling the law of God. 
It's a holy day. It's a countercultural day. It's a day in which we push against the gods of the empire, the gods of Egypt. I mean, that's the fundamental statement. We hear, have you ever thought about what was happening in the Exodus? You've got God's people who were sort of led into Egypt, you know, through the whole Joseph thing. And then a whole bunch of years go by, 400 years, some people say, go by where they're living in slavery in Egypt or living in kind of this, this system of Egypt. Well, that means that they had generation upon generation that didn't know anything about Joseph. They didn't know anything even about God, about this Yahweh God who had been there, uh, who had spoken to their forefather, Abraham, who had sustained them. And so when God leads them out, he wants to distinguish himself from the other gods. They'd all grown up in a system in Egypt where there's this pantheon of gods. You know, you're worshiping everything. And God wants to distinguish himself from all of those. Some theologians have even argued, as a side note, that that's what the plagues are about. You guys remember the plagues in Egypt? I always used to think that was just God being creative. You know, like, how can I make these people as miserable as possible? I know, frogs. (laughs) But if you study it, each of the plagues um, addressed one of the gods of Egypt. What was the first plague? Blot out the sun. Who's the primary god in the pantheon of Egypt? Ra. Ra the sun god, right? And each of the plagues addresses one of the gods of Egypt, whether it's the Nile or whether it's, there there is, in fact, in Egypt, a a god with the head of a frog, right? And then the final one goes straight to the heart of Pharaoh himself, who is considered the god over the people of Egypt, the morning and the evening star, right? We have God distinguishing himself from the gods of of the empire. And when he steps out, when he leads his people out, he says, one of the things I want you to understand about me is I'm not a god like those. I'm not a God who needs your constant activity. I need you to rest in me. That's the story of the Exodus. It's a God who emancipates us from the oppressive and dehumanizing systems that we find ourselves in, from slavery to sin and death, and frees us to rest in himself. That's how his people are to be defined. That's how they're to be distinguished. They distinguish themselves from the gods of busyness, from this constant need to do more, and in so doing, to be worth something. Isn't that how it works in this world? If you ask somebody how they're doing today in this day and age, what are they going to say? I'm busy. I'm busy. Whether it's an eighth grader or somebody who's retired or anybody in between, I'm so busy. And we wear it like a badge of honor. I've done it. I'm guilty of this. Busy means I'm important. It means I have relevance. Look at how important I am, guys. I'm so busy right now. But you heard it. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll do what? He'll make you busy. Badness and busyness basically have the same effect. They distract us from what God is up to in our lives. And the Sabbath is to be a day of distinguishing holiness, a day that we are distinguished from the busyness of this world. Push against the gods of busyness. It's a a day to be distinguished from the gods of consumerism. In Egypt, it was all about bigger, bigger, and more. They're building bricks to build storehouses for Pharaoh to store his excess grain. I think when Jesus tells the story of the guy who's building bigger barns, you guys remember that story? I think it's a a direct referral to to what's happening in Egypt. Bigger barns, more grain, more and more, constant more. Sabbath is a day when we push back against the gods of busyness, against the gods of consumerism, and say, no, no, no. Today is not a day for wanting more. It's a day for giving thanks for what we already have. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who provides fruit on the vine. He provides bread from the ground. We are grateful for everything we have. I will buy nothing today, right? I mean, in, in Jewish society, that's how it works. In Jerusalem, all the shops close. So it's, not, it's not only is it not a day for work, and if you're working in a shop, you're working, but it's also not a day for buying. 
It's a day for resting in what you have. It's a, way, it's a day that's holy to be distinguished from the gods of oppression. Right? Gods that demand that people work harder with less. That's how it works. We need you to work more with less resources to produce more bricks with less straw. You are slaves to a system. And God says, no, I've taken you out of that. I have freed you from these oppressive and dehumanizing systems so that you can rest and be fully alive, be fully human. It's really, really important that we understand that God has emancipated us from tyranny to freedom. So Sabbath is a day where we push back against these gods of oppression, these gods that would dehumanize us and make us producers. My friends, you are not a producer. You are a person. You had meaning before you ever did anything. It's really, really important for you to hear. Do you know when God told Jesus that he was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased? Before he'd ever done anything in ministry. He lived out of his belovedness, not into it. You are not loved because of what you can produce. Because of what you can create. You are loved because of the one who's created you. In whose image you're made. Sabbath is the day where we remember that. You're not a producer. You're a human. Made in the image of God. It's a day that's holy where we push back against the gods of self-reliance. The gods that, that lead us to believe that it's because of my work that all this happens. Remember what happens in the Exodus? So God leads them out. He gives them these commands. And then they get out in the wilderness and they just start to complain because they're hungry and they're tired. And they just want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to oppression. And so God says, okay, you're hungry. I'll feed you. And he pours down this manna from the sky that just literally bread from heaven that falls on the ground. You know, and they come out and they say, what is this? Which is literally what manna means, by the way. Did you know that? Manna means what is it? So that's, they, they call this stuff, what is it? That's a good enough name. So, so they come out. And God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Every day, I want you to go out and collect some manna. Don't collect too much. Because if you try to collect too much, if you try to get five days worth on one day, more work, then it's going to rot. It's only going to be enough for one day. It will preserve. This stuff will keep for one day. But on the Sabbath day, I don't want you to work. So on Friday, I want you to collect for two days. But wait, God, uh, the other times I've collected for two days, it rots. God says what? Trust me. Trust me. It's going to keep. I will sustain it. You have done no work to earn this. You have done nothing to deserve it. I will sustain it. Sabbath is a day we remember where it's not our work that makes the world go around. It's his. We trust him. We put our phones away. We put all of the work away. And we come into the next day realizing that, wow, it all still works. Aren't you good, God? Finally, Sabbath is a day where we push back against the gods of isolation. It's a community day. I have people ask me, and I've asked people before, what's your Sabbath look like? And I think that's such a silly question. What do you mean, what's my Sabbath look like? It's all of our Sabbaths. It's a day. God's not wanting to, to build restful individuals. He's wanting to build a restful community, a community that is free from oppression and anxiety. He's wanting to do something in all of us together so that we can together be a city on a hill. This is not about you as an individual living for the glory of God. This is about Lighthouse Church as a church living for the glory of God in every moment and every circumstance. That's what this is about. So I want to suggest something that, again, I am implicated in myself as I stand here. This is one of those messages that hurt as I was preparing it. I want to suggest that we reclaim the Sabbath as a community so that we can 
reframe our thinking so that we can step out of the rhythms of this world, be drawn up into the rhythms of the kingdom, and then released back into the world to live differently. That's how it works. We're drawn out, emancipated, transformed, and then put back in so that we can be a redeeming presence, so that we live at a different frequency than the world around us. Sabbath, so important, such an important rhythm that I want to reclaim personally in my family and in church. Not because it's righteousness, right? Jesus goes after the Pharisees for this. He says, you've made it something it wasn't supposed to be. But notice, he never says, you know what? You've screwed this thing up. Let's just throw it all away. No, Jesus, this is really, really important. The corrective for wrong use is not no use, it's right use. Jesus, I think, is calling us as a church into Sabbath, not because we need to earn our salvation, but because we are saved to enable us to live into it. It's not righteousness, it's wisdom. It's all about a God who emancipates us from freedom, or or from, from slavery to sin and death, and frees us to rest in himself. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 11, right? Come to me. Come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. That's what Sabbath is. It's a way of engaging with that Jesus who has promised us rest. Would you pray with me? God, I stand here today having said a lot of words. Um, And my prayer is that no one in this room would feel a weight or a burden, but would instead feel an invitation from your spirit to step into life in your kingdom in a different way. I haven't given any practicals today. I haven't given any, so here's what this could look like. But I pray that you give everyone in these seats by your spirit an imagination for what this can be in their lives, in the lives of their family, and most significantly in the lives of Lighthouse Community Church. Jesus, I believe this is a way we can participate in you, with you in the rest that you have promised to give us that we so desperately need. As we pray, as we worship together, would you draw us up into your heart? Draw us out of the stuff that is binding us and holding us down. Captivate us by a vision of your kingdom and send us back into the world to be a peaceful, restful, unhurried, unbusy, unoppressive, unself-reliant, transformed, redeemed, and redeeming community. We love you and we're grateful. Amen.